This is the Bobcast, a podcast exploring Reformed theology through the works of Herman Bobink. Welcome to episode 15 of Bobcast. I'm Caleb. I'm Mark. And I'm Andrew. We're continuing our discussion of general revelation, picking up where we left off on page 23 in chapter 3 of Herman Bovink's The Wonderful Works of God. Just reading Bovink, one of the things I've come to really appreciate about him, his knowledge of scripture, it's it's amazing. It's it's beautiful. It's wonderful. Just that summation that we got bits of Isaiah, we got bits of Psalm, we got bits of Matthew, and he just seamlessly weaves it all together. And to me, that's I hope that someday in my life I will be able to get to that point. You know, I just I just wrapped up a sacrifice of praise and the editors ended up adding all the stuff, but he di- he didn't even reference the stuff. He was just weaving them in and and they were so close that they knew exactly what they were talking about and they were able to insert those and we see them here in these parentheses as well. It is just the way that Bavink was so permeated by the word of God. And I think that that really, you know, sets a bar for us, not not to be legalists or anything, but uh, something to aspire to as Christians, that uh, we would be able to know God's word so intimately. Well, also something I think we see a lot of in our day, particularly in uh, academic study of the Bible and of theology. Well, for one thing, all disciplines are becoming so specialized in our day and segmented. And then you see often biblical theology pitted against systematic theology as though one must rule over the other and one must triumph over the other and it's like so Bavink, I mean, his discipline was dogmatics. We'd know it as systematic theology. And yet look at how biblical his work in that is. I mean this this is biblical theology, but done in a systematic fashion, but it is deeply rooted and grounded in scripture. So we shouldn't assume that just because someone is a systematic theologian that they're not grounded in scripture. Yeah, I'm glad you you guys brought that point up, how he's steeping this in scripture, since, uh, you know, the beginning of this section on page 22, you know, he's talking about here the content of both revelations, general and special, are contained in the word. So when he's, he's putting all this out there, I mean, he's making it abundantly clear that the word is telling us God is active in his creation, that God is creator and God is governor. Right. And all this points now to the next point in his argument there at the bottom of page 23, where moreover, God carries out his counsel and establishes his work in history as well as in nature. So so getting at what Caleb was talking about, that, so, so we have this word, we have this word established. We see how God is creator. We are creation. There's a clear distinction there. So not only is is he the maker of, of all things in nature, but, but he's also actively working in it throughout history. This is where we kind of get into creation of man, the unity of man. Some of the things that we talked about in the most recent Bob bite here is at the bottom of page 23. I think it was just brilliant how he makes this move from going to nature to then to history and talking about uh, mankind here. Because it's like we're showing that here's the act of God who's involved in his creation and is regarding mankind and giving his image to man. And from the line of men, he brings forth the incarnate son of God. Um, and here in the, it, 
uh, this last paragraph on page 23 into the next, he's he's really going into like the history of the covenant, the history of redemption. Beginning in that paragraph on the bottom of page 23, we see this walk, this very quick walk through redemptive history. He made of one blood all nations of men to dwell on the face of the earth. Again, getting back into the unity of the race we talked about in that last Bob bite. He talks about the flood um, and the preservation of the family of Noah. So again, getting into the Noahic covenant and the common grace uh, evident there that we talked about a little earlier. The Tower of Babel, the confusion of language, the dispersion over the face of the earth. Now remember again, back to our Bob bite, these scattering of languages, these scattering of cultures, uh, it was an evidence of decline. Not to say that everything that it produced was is bad or that it produced any kind of hierarchical relationship between peoples, but it was just there was a deviation, there was a departure from God that all of that symbolized. And then there is the division of the nations into their inheritance, the separation of the sons of Adam, um, the determining of the times appointed before the bounds of their habitation, according to the number of the children of Israel. But then you get into the top of page 24. Although he chose the children of Israel to be the bearers of his special revelation and permitted the heathen nations to walk in their own ways, nonetheless, he did not neglect them nor leave them to their own fate. On the contrary, he did not leave himself without a witness and that he did good, granting rain from heaven and fruitful seasons and filling their hearts with food and gladness. So on the level of this common grace, on the level of this general revelation, God still revealed himself to these people and he still blessed these people. So we see again this appeal to Romans 1. From these things, uh, they should have known God. I mean, they already being man, being created in the image of God, owed their allegiance to God. And yet God also further, through these acts of common grace, showed himself to them. And we see here that by this general revelation, God has preserved the peoples and led them to the dispensation of the fullness of times, that he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both the things which are in heaven and the things which are on the earth. And, and then we, we see how this is for all nations, all people, all kindred. Um, again, you know, Revelation 7, 9 um, he, he also cites here uh, Romans eleven twenty five, where, where we have that tree that the Gentiles are grafted into Judaism as the roots. And, and, and he is preparing that for, for the end of the world in which the nations of them that are saved shall walk in the light of the city of God and all the kings and peoples of the earth shall bring their glory and honor into it. Like I just... I can't wait for that day. Like that will be such a glorious day. Like think about what heaven is going to be like, guys. In light of all the division that we see every single you know newscast now with all the riots and and all the parades and everything, we we see so much division, uh, so much hate. All that's going to be gone, and, and it just like it seems too good be to be true, but. That's the reality of things, and, and I, I long for that day, and I pray that it comes quickly because we need it. General Revelation, as we said earlier in this section, has its content and fullness in Scripture, uh, which also does require special revelation, the illumination from God. The, the things of general revelation are things of creation, and creation's not going to save us. No manner of reasoning by our own minds, our own understanding— 
that's going to lead us astray. No uh, searching inside our hearts, uh, looking for some inner light. We're not pantheists. We're not God. And we need something outside of us to proclaim truth to us and change our hearts. Yeah, so we've been spending all this time talking about the general revelation of God, how he shows himself through nature and how he interacts in history uh, and things like that. And Bobby here says that this is for God to establish for himself out of all nations and peoples, one group of people, one one church. And then Bavik moves on to this paragraph that starts in the science of theology, men have tried to arrange all these witnesses in nature and history to the existence and being of God and to classify them into groups. So God has created us as as reasonable beings uh, and men are left to observe. You know, all that talk that we had in previous episodes about seeing God in nature. We talked about the painting illustration, things of that nature. Now man is, is going to establish kind of these six theological philosophical evidences for how he understands the world according to God. Right. They're essentially proofs, they're arguments for the existence of God. Yeah, these proofs have been generated by philosophers, theologians, uh, both Christians and non-Christians, and have been worked through for a long time in history now. Um, And they largely derive from natural theology, from what we can prove about God from nature alone, from from reason and these kind of things. And so there, as Bob Inc. will talk about in just a moment, these arguments aren't enough to compel someone to believe, but they do give us an idea uh, about God and the things he does in this world. Right. And Bobbing's going to lay out six of them for us. So just so you kind of know where we're going, a little bit of a roadmap, we're going to be looking at the cosmological argument, the teleological argument, the ontological argument, the moral argument, the correspondence argument, and the governance argument. To get things kicked off here, let's first talk about the cosmological argument. The cosmological argument is... Basically, we see God demonstrated through the world's limitations, the fact that the world is limited. Basically, it is dependent. It is not an independent thing. Something had to cause the world. Something had to cause the cosmos in order for it to exist because you see that processes in nature that are dependent on other processes came before. Basically, all of that had to start somewhere. And we would say with someone, that is God. There has to be a first cause. This is Aristotle's unmoved mover. This is actually an important argument, for instance, dealing with Mormonism and Latter-day Saints because they believe that matter has eternally existed and that there's basically this endless repeating cycle of gods creating people who become gods who create people who become gods. In order for that system to work, there has to be a one ultimate transcendent god at the back of it, which is why there's problems with Mormonism. You know, you kind of end up with the question, what what caused that? Yeah, where what is the start of all that uh, even before the gods of, of the Mormons or uh, even pagans, polytheists, um, even things like the Big Bang. Like, yeah, what actually caused all that? Every single result has to have had a cause. If there's any change at all, which Bob Inc. gives us some examples, creation is subject to space and time. You know, there's temporality. Things are temporary. Things have outward appearances that can change. Things are dependent. You know, everything can affect something else. And if that's all the case, then 
there has to be something or there has to be God who is changeless and has started all of it. So you can see why this is important. Like if you're trying to argue the existence of God to somebody, you can point, you know, this all had to come from somewhere, right? This is this is what we've gone back to time and time again in the Bobcast about Romans 1. Like you see everything, all this had to come from somewhere. Something had to make all this happen. So now that we have the cosmological argument under our belt, uh, let's move now to the teleological argument. Telos is the Greek word for end or purpose. Uh, What this evidence is arguing for is that the world is created for a purpose. You know, philosophy 101, this is Paley's watch, where there's this inherent design and things seem to be working towards uh, a specific end. There's an inherent design in what we see with those various systems in the universe. Uh, And all of that points back to a designer who created for a purpose. And this is a helpful argument, like Say, for instance, you're dealing with someone who insists on a naturalistic worldview that basically all of these things, all the things that we see and have just came to be by chance, came to be spontaneously. Even if that were granted, how do you take account, for instance, that, well, there is matter and that matter acts in a certain way when it comes into contact with other matter? It just raises more questions that it answers when someone takes that perspective. And ultimately, the only way to account for these things is to say that, well, somebody made this, somebody put this here, somebody established this order. To what you're saying, a good example uh, of purposelessness, uh, random chance, uh, would be you know Darwinism, evolution. You know, you want to look at a naturalistic framework. I think that evolutionists have a little bit more of a difficult time in actually explaining the purposes that everything's moving towards, that life would be moving towards if it really just came from random chance that we appeared, that life appeared at all. And it's constantly changing. Well, what's it changing for? Or, I mean, why are we here? And, like, what what is the point of our being and our existence? There really isn't one. I mean, you know, they would probably say to, like, you know, survive and promulgate the species and what have you. But, I mean... Really, why is that even good? Why is that even something to strive for? Right. Whereas, you know, we can turn back to Westminster Shorter Catechism question and answer number one, what is man's chief end? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So there's a Christian form of purpose that we see derived from scripture. And then, you know, like Andrew was talking about, the kind of naturalistic, pass on your genetic material and propagate the species, survival of the fittest, and all that kind of stuff. Either way you look at it, though, there is kind of this implied purpose to life and being. Well, and I mean, that's kind of part of that's part of the argument. That's part of the proof is that man seeks a purpose. Man seems to understand this concept of purpose, that he wants to believe that he lives for something. And I mean, we would say as Christians, that's part of the image of God. That's part of the law, the truth that God has written on his heart. And I think that naturalists, those coming from a naturalistic worldview, would struggle to explain that. All right, all right, Caleb, your turn. Ontological argument in 30 seconds. Go. Yeah, so the ontological argument is basically the argument uh, about reality, how, how things actually are. It's an argument of a material and really specifically an argument of reason. So you might have heard about uh, Anselm who made an argument that we can deduce, we can reason that God exists. Uh, if we just really think about the definition of God, God is that which nothing else greater can be conceived. 
a, a big part of the ontological argument is kind of this whole concept of gradation, right? Different levels of being. And so so we exist and, and therefore we had to be created by some something greater than ourselves. So God is the, the highest, like the upper echelon of being. So we exist and God exists on on that much higher of a plane. So so his being is that much further above ours, infinitely so in the case of Christianity. So in order for us to have any kind of notion of being, it necessitates a being greater than ourselves. All right, Andrew, that brings us to our our fourth evidence here, which is the moral evidence. And this one, I mean, all of these are really important, but this one is really particularly important. And I think we've kind of hit on it before indirectly, but now we basically get down to the brass tacks of it. So man is not merely a rational, but also a moral being. So we have a conscience. We have an awareness of morality and of moral law. Again, most people will agree on basic moral principles, like it's wrong to kill, it's wrong to steal, it's wrong to lie. It's wrong to defraud. These aren't things that people have to be convinced of. They aren't usually. I mean, obviously, we can suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Our consciences can become seared. And sure, then people can actually come to different conclusions. But in general, there is general basic morality. And what that is, what that does is that reflects, I mean, it's language of Westminster Confession, Chapter 4, the law of God written on the hearts of man. When we are created in the image of God, that includes being created with his law. And so we have Romans 1 again, but we also have Romans 2 where it gets into the law being written on the hearts of man. Okay, and that kind of wraps up like the four basics that Bob Inc. lays out. And then he says that there are really kind of two more. The next one that he gets into is is this correspondence evidence. And pretty much what the, the correspondence evidence is, is that you can look at any group of people, any culture throughout history and you see this phenomenon of uh, a religious sense of something there there is no atheistic tribe he says every people group throughout history has something in common and that thing that they have in common is they develop their own kind of religion this is something that's hardwired in humanity and this is what Bavink is laying out here in this correspondence evidence, this this need for a God across all people or, you know, multiple gods. You know, obviously there are polytheists and panentheists and whatever kind of theists there are. But that kind of innate sense that man needs to have something to worship is is always there. That and it's not just the need of worship, but I think uh, we also have to include religions have a moral command in it. Um there is uh, moral principles that come along in religion and that we see no matter where you're at in time or history or in the world, the religions of the world are trying to make some kind of sense of how to act. And this this is why non-Christian religions typically lean so rule heavy. So do this, don't do that, do this, don't do that. There's a basis in it in that uh, religion is moral, it is ethical. The problem becomes when it's disconnected from the origin of all morality, the lawgiver, um, which Bob Inc. actually says a moment ago in uh, at the end of the ethical argument, uh, law or ethics presuppose a holy and righteous lawgiver. And I think we could say, conversely, that these have to go hand in hand with our beliefs. What do we believe about these ethics or these ways to be, ways to live? 
And those beliefs essentially form a religion. So that brings us to our sixth and final evidence here that Bavink lays out for us, the governance evidence. In the governance view, or rather uh, also the, the the providence view, basically everything in existence, all, all, all things are moving in uh and events, and these events are ultimately related. There is, in history, you, you can see that you can connect these events, see how one thing in one part of the world uh, at another time has affected another portion, uh, another time or place in the world. Basically, all these things, have uh, these, these events in history are in some way linked together because there is a governor, a, a providential uh, being who's causing these things, who's who's moving them towards these purposes, uh, who's orchestrating all aspects of it. Right. We kind of got at that notion uh, a couple episodes ago when we were talking about uh, the organic web that, that God weaves and his knowledge and his hand and all of that, his providential hand and all of that. So not only are all these things kind of going, like God isn't like hurting cats. He's orchestrating things to work to those purposes. And it kind of assumes all these other evidences that we've been been talking about you know it points to the fact that god is you know the first cause he he's over everything he started everything he's managing everything he's working it to his purposes like the teleological argument uh we we see god as as this supreme being who's capable of doing all these things uh god's law reflects who god is and he's working according to who he is who has revealed himself to be you know his divine attributes humanity is all made in his image. You know, we have that Imago Dei, that, that religious basis, that God-shaped vacuum throughout all humanity. And, and we see kind of God weaving everything together in this governance view. And yet, having laid out now all of these evidences, Bob Inc. proceeds in that final paragraph on page 25 to evaluate them. And while these evidences are helpful, while they have their benefits, while they have their uses... This is critical. They are not enough to compel a man to believe. As a matter of fact, he goes on, science or philosophy has very few evidences capable of accomplishing that. Because the fact of the matter is, all these evidences can be suppressed in unrighteousness. They can all be denied by man. And at the end of the day, the only way that someone can actually believe in God, believe in God as he has revealed himself as if God grants that to him through special revelation and through the work of the Holy Spirit through regeneration. This general revelation only gets us so far. These arguments we've just laid out here, all they really do is they point to there is a God, something like a God. They don't tell us who God is. They don't tell us what God has done. They don't unfold the plan of redemption to us. Yeah, it's the, uh, you know, I think uh, the Proverbs and the and Psalms tell us repeatedly, you know, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and uh, it's fools that despise wisdom instruction. And we know the only place that we can uh, truly have a beginning of this knowledge, uh, true saving knowledge is in the word by revelation of God. And so what this means is, for one thing, is that these evidences, again, while they're not enough to bring someone to faith, not enough to bring someone to salvation, they can be used for, for instance, for the encouragement and edification of the saints to help strengthen their faith. You can look at the world around you and say, hey, actually, you know, the things that I've learned in church, the things that my Christian faith teaches me, 
actually prove themselves out in nature, in creation, and in providence. So it's with these evidences that man tries to make sense of who God is as he's revealed himself in nature and throughout history, apart from the written word of God, but but also you know, with the written word of God. And all this is going to lead up to next time into this divine sense, as Calvin calls it. So make sure you join us again next time as we get into that discussion. Uh, we thank you for joining us for another Bobcast. And until next time, Tote Zines. Tote Zines. Tote Zines. Thank you for listening to Bobcast. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe and leave a five-star review where you get your podcasts. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Bobcast. And email questions or comments to bobcast at gmail.com. Bobcast is a member of the Society of Reform Podcasters. Subscribe to the Society of Reform Podcasters feed to get more great theological content. Music is City of God by Rudy Manrique. We hope you'll join us again next time.